Kukalinach, Lasten Kora Sachta Koking, Unangach, a Koking. My name is Aquilina Lestinka. I am Unangach. I live on Tanach Amich, otherwise known on maps as St. Paul Island, Pribilof Islands, Alaska. Today on the show, we're going to hear from Aquilina Lestinkoff and take you to a remote island off the coast of Alaska, just above the Aleutian Islands and not too far from Russia. Among the bellows of the fur seals and windswept sea cliffs of St. Paul Island, Aquilina works to preserve the Unangan language and teach a new generation of youth about where they've come from and how far they still have to go in order to protect what she calls the ingredients that make up her community and culture. The Wi-Fi connection on the island isn't great, but she agreed to speak with me. My name is Serena Simons, and this is the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 165. Here's Aquilina. I definitely am of an island spirit. I look out across the sea that surrounds the island and am very grateful um, and feel very fortunate to be living where I do. The rolling hills of the island are very sensual and I look out across them and year after year, season after season, they are ever so uh, wonderful and comforting. I appreciate the island for uh, many things from the people that we that I live with that uh, you see day after day you um, interact with each other for example I went for a wonderful walk last night um, and when I walked I walked along the main streets of the village and your hand is constantly in this waveform as people drive by or walk by I see children playing Often a little mud puddle, and I, I walked up and I snuck up on them and threw some pebbles into the little. Uh, well, it wasn't little; it was actually a huge uh, mud puddle, uh, probably like six inches deep because they were floating on flat pieces of styrofoam on top of this this huge puddle. And I threw pebbles onto the, into the the little lake <laughs> that they were playing in. And they were wondering, what is that? What is that? And the fact that I can like sneak up on children in my community and interact with them is quite fortunate because when you think of other locations where people are afraid to interact and there's, there's the lock your doors and don't talk to strangers, you don't worry about that here. And you have time for um, much more grounding and very heartfelt and personal interactions with your community uh, because you don't live in fear of stranger danger and such. The other thing is that with uh, people interactions, uh, when people are hurt, you hurt too. Those are tough times when people are done visiting this land. When their lives have ended, uh, it hurts, but you have uh, the community to find comfort in. In parallel to that, you have this island that holds us all and holds us all wonderfully that is in itself comforting. 
the scent. I think when you walk out a door and you're hit by this salty sea air and it sort of just grounds you and and you take it in and it it fills you and you feel ready to to go to keep going um and that salty air is very different throughout the seasons it may be absent in the winter or it may be cool and crisp and in the spring it uh carries a scent of the birds that are starting to migrate back to the island and in the middle of the summer it may be the it may carry the scent of the seal poop <laughs> but those things um they're year after year when you experience them um it you have you build continuity and it's like a it's a cycle As someone who's lived on the island for a long time, I asked Aquilina if she's noticed any changes within her community or her environment, as island communities are unfortunately often the first to experience the effects of climate change. Mm, Wow. I remember the times of being a little girl and playing in mountains of snow, um, building forts and building uh, tunnels and uh, blizzards and snowstorms and the sea ice uh, coming from up north and surrounding the island. And we don't have that anymore. And we haven't had it for a number of years. Uh, In the past 10 or so years, 10 or more, uh, there have definitely been changes in the climate that have impacted uh, the birds and the fur seals and people and what people do on the islands. In regards to community life, St. George Island, where I was born, many people have moved away and the island and the community face um, potential school closure. When I see photos at this point of St. George Island and you see abandoned houses. It's very heart-wrenching to see that happening. And at the same time, because we are so close in proximity to St. George Island, there's the concern that is that going to happen to us too? Um, How do we uh, roll up our sleeves and keep things going in our community so that we're able to live here for a long period of time? The populations of birds and fur seals have dropped quite dramatically. Uh, probably in the past 10 to 12 years, it's for the fur seals, it's been an average of about 6% decline annually. And this year, in speaking with the hunters, there are hardly any birds that they were able to hunt comfortably even just because of the decline. Um, Birds have not been successful with nesting and rearing young this year. 
um, the fur seals, they're ever so present. And I think if someone comes to the island, if they were to come right now, they would be amazed at how many fur, se fur seals you could see on the beach. However, because I grew up here, I've seen the amount get smaller and smaller and smaller, and the sound of the fur seals bellowing off in the distance have beca has become quieter and quieter. And it's tough because there isn't anything we can do here on the island. What people tend to forget is that the birds and the fur seals um, migrate to the islands and they really spend most of the time out at sea. Or in the case of the birds, they go south and they, they live somewhere else. So they're not, what's happening here on Tanakh Ami is not impacting them. It's what's happening when they're away and it's, we can't go there and fix it. And it's, it, you feel helpless in that sense. So, the the Unangan people are very connected to the islands and also very connected to the fur seals. So how does that affect the 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 essence and the identity of of the culture when you're seeing this decline in 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 an animal and a species that is so representative of your culture? How does that how does that make you personally feel and and, and I mean is there any sort of foreboding message that you see in that in, in parallels to um, the way indigenous people have been treated historically on the land and, and tying that to now the way that the, the earth is being treated? That's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> um, Unangan, uh, for the most part, are, if they were to be born of a particular culture linked to a particular species, it would be of a bird culture. And when we, Unangan, that now live on the Purbalaf Islands, came here, we became linked to uh, the northern fur seal. And our story is usually told in history books as being the slaves of the fur seal harvest, or we were brought here uh, against our will. In a sense, it is true. But really, if we didn't come when we did, the first seal probably would have been decimated in the 17, 1800s because they were being, um, the humans that were interacting with them at the time did not understand sustainability. And so we had to come. And even if it was a very tough time with basically men being plucked out of their villages on the Aleutian Islands um, and brought to the Pribilof Islands as a labor force without their families, taken away from their families. I can't imagine that. Uh, but at the same time, I'm very grateful that uh, they survived it and that we're still here as protectors of the fur seals. I don't, it does feel like we're not doing a good job of it. That's where you need a champion probably to go and 
connect with the politics of the United States. Um, interestingly, the protective measures for the fur seals were linked to their uh, the commercial take of them. And when the commercial take of the fur seals stopped, the interest stopped, those protective measures weakened and the attention from the United States government faltered and failed. It's failing. So I'm not saying that we should be taking fur seals for their furs uh, as happened in the past, but it's interesting how we have, we developed these, um, these links to protect species, species that are taken for commercial purposes. And I, I, I'd hate to see it happen to other species. The other thing is the younger people are linked to commercial uh, fisheries, crab, halibut. Uh, those are those are their um, their connections right now. So it's shifted even within our own economic well-being as to what sustains our community and, and keeps us here and is able to afford us um, the modern lifestyles that we have with air and air service and freight service and amazon.com and money in our pockets and those types of things. And it seemed like it happened so fast. It really happened over decades, but it feels like it happened so fast. Um, I don't know where the uh, fur seals will end up. And that's disheartening. Or the birds. I don't know where they will end up, and that's disheartening. But at the same time, you sort of have to trust Earth Mother and that she knows what's going on, and things, whatever those are, will be corrected and set on the right path. being said, I can't go out and chase uh, the politics. I have to stay at home and keep the fire burning in a sense because uh, the language, which is my main focus right now, and it, the culture that we have known in the past, the little bits and pieces that we keep going right now, I think will be important in the future. And the only way that I can do it is to stay put and to keep that uh, language fire kindled or to keep uh, the, the weaving or uh, use of our resources to clothe us, etc. We're not good at it, but um, you know, the way that we're going to keep them going is by staying put. Do you feel like your community is on... Um, as uncertain ground and shaky ground as the first seal and the birds that you describe? Yes. <laughs> um, it's interesting how it's a parallel universe, right? <laughs> um, we are linked to them. Without them, 
um, so many parts of our culture would have to shift to uh, a different to different ingredients. Those are our ingredients in our culture: the birds, the sea, uh, the fur seals, the stellar sea lion, as we know them now, kawach, lakud, sapuchavan. They are the ingredients in in who we are. Uh, I am a firm believer it, it, with the language also. I think with the language, if you asked me this question three years ago, I would have said, yes, we're in the critical care unit. And like we're giving where I'm like I'm pressing on the on the heart of our language. And I can't leave this emergency room in order to keep it alive. But in three years, with uh, consistency and a team of people, we're uh, we're out of the critical care uh, unit and we're in a recovery room. I feel so. It's possible, and I think it's possible for many other realms of our culture to do that. I think most everything, most everything that we have practiced in the past, is. They, it's still alive and can continue and can continue in a daily basis if necessary. And that's the thing is most people don't see it as necessary because you have um, North Face and you have kayak companies and you have Amazon.com and you have those types of luxuries. But I think we're doing okay. I think we're... Um, I think, and I think um, that if the fur seals and the birds aren't here, we won't be either. So that will, that is scary. Um, there was a big, I, I would say, revolution in indigenous rights and activism and sovereignty that happened kind of came to a head with Standing Rock. Um, do you feel like that momentum is carried over all the way to you on the islands and your community? Or do you feel like you're, you're, you're just, it's, it's so removed from the lower 48, you know, and I feel like those, the issues for Alaska natives are not I mean, the the history that they that they teach in schools is already so butchered. But I'm I don't think they're saying anything about um, the the purchase of Alaska and um, in United States history and what that actually meant and looked like for the Alaskan natives. And I mean, do you feel like that that story, the the new story of indigenous um, activism and revolution is carrying over to your community or do you feel a little bit by the wayside yeah um no i i when standing rock was happening whatever that means i did feel um a kindred spirituality to what was happening there as far away as i was and i guess that's where we can thank um modern technology for allowing us to see it happening and 
it, it, it pulled up my heartstrings to see what was going on there. And it also uh, brought back uh, memories through story of what our people have been through and to realize, oh, we're not done yet. Um, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done. And in fact, I say it took us 300 years. What's in, in, in this case, it's gosh, more than that, uh, to where we are. So it's going to probably take a couple more centuries to get things back on I don't know if I want to say back on track, on the right track, because there's no going back, really. I It was an eye-opener, and it's amazing to me, as visible as it was, um, that to know that there are still way too many people in the United States that don't know its story and its, its uh, history. And... I realize that about our own story and our own history. People look at Alaska and they think gold rush or they think oil rush and our little fur rush chapter sort of is has gone by the wayside. But I really feel like it has so many um, helpful hints and tools that people should look at to figure out how do we not repeat history and do this all over again. All in perspective, right? Because when I look at the lower 48 and the United in Washington, D.C., we all get grouped together for their own purposes. We get separated for another purpose, like there are the... Um, Native Americans, lower 48, Indians, and there are the Alaska Natives, and then there are the Hawaiian uh, people. So it seems like um, we need to figure out how we all fit in those realms without having Washington, Washington D.C. govern um, how we all come together. The interesting thing for myself is I I do feel a little more connected to the Russian Far East. When I went to my family lineage, there's a part of me that came from this area north of Moscow and went across Siberia and married into the Unangan, to the Unangan country uh, in the 1800s. And so I try to respect that part of my story and be sure I don't forget that either. And I had a couple of opportunities to go to, uh, oops, Petropavlovsk, Kamchatka. And I, there, there was a part of me that felt like I was home and that I could like be there. And it made me look at a little more in, in depth about where I am uh, am at politically uh, or where I'm at as an indigenous person. And if I get grouped with Alaska natives, sometimes that feels like it's not right because we are an island culture and the majority of the Alaska natives um, are mainland or coastal people we still have to take them into consideration when we make decisions and, and 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 figure out these political boundaries that we have and how to not be 
grouped from the perspective of the people that came post-1492. Interestingly, the name Alaska came from uh, our language, Unangan language, and it's uh, mainland. And so all of the Alaska natives to me are mainlanders, and I'm not a mainlander. So I think about those things. And in regards to Standing Rock, um, the issue and the healing, the sickness from Western consumer culture definitely needs us indigenous peoples, indigenous perspectives at this time. And I'm very grateful for all of the people that came together there and what they suffered in order for us to move forward. For us to move forward, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more suffering. Um, It's not going to be easy, that's for sure. But it's time. And it's not only time for indigenous people. I think it's also time for women. You talked about keeping that fire at home and wanting to stoke that fire and keep that fire for your community and doing what you can at home instead of going out to Washington and, and doing all these things out there. So I'm just curious, you know, I, th- I think this is happening all over the world with women kind of taking, taking the lead and maybe have always been taking the lead, um, but are maybe getting recognized for it now. And, um, so what, what does the role look like in your community? Are, are women at the forefront of, um, you know, the language revitalization program, or are they at the forefront of kind of keeping the community together? Or what does that look like? Behind every uh, successful man is a good woman telling them what to do, right? <laughs> I remember seeing that somewhere. <laughs> um, again, it's like, it may be more visible um, at a national level, the efforts women are putting into putting us all on the right track. Yeah. But it's been happening for a lot longer. What we see now is a result of 40 years. And I'm sure we've just been uh, stepping on the backs of all the women from way before the last 40 years. It's only that we had the 60s and 70s and the, that people have paid attention to it. I'm sure technology, television and has played a role in that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure women have been doing it for a long time. Um, looking back at in our community in regards to World War II and the evacuation uh, of our communities to Southeast Alaska and being placed in these old abandoned uh, canneries, uh, just really poor conditions. It was um, a group of women that wrote a petition and said, we can't live like this. And it was, there were women stepping up to the plate saying, this is just deplorable. So I think it's always happened for myself. I, probably in the 80s, 90s, and it maybe was because I have two sons. It seemed like any interactions I had um, as playing, uh, being a role model in my community, it was with young men. 
Now, when we had uh, camps that were stewardship camps where we were cleaning up the marine debris and and figuring out how to full utilization of uh, fur seals after the cessation of the commercial fur harvest, it was all young men. And almost quickly, it just transitioned into women that were stepping up to the plate. Uh, we have annual subsistence fur seal harvests that through the whole commercialization for a couple of centuries, it was it was men's work. And now there are many women that have stepped up to the plate with subsistence gathering um, on the harvest field in regards to fur seals. Um, in the language of vitalization work that I'm in now, uh, it's women. It's parallel to what's happening in other places. Um, it's a small scale. Um, there are women that have left and they're filling roles at either the immediate level of our nation in our region, in Alaska, and beyond also. Um, so it's, yeah, it's happening. Do you feel like um, that fire that you're carrying, that specific fire that you're carrying for community wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't exist without you. Oh gosh, I would hope not. <laughs> um, yes. I think, um, and, and it scares me sometimes. I feel like my dad, um, at some point in my life realized that, uh, I was going to have some mission. He started to interact with me about, our people, our history, and and he brought out books and he spoke to me of how um, our people mummified the remains of um, chiefs and how just uh, it was a variety of things the the kayaks and the gut skin clothing and it sparked an interest in me and maybe and, and I followed it and his guidance was very important his um, his um, if, if people look at their history a lot of times it's the church that has wiped out aspects of uh, our communities our cultures and that happened with us it wasn't just the church, it was the people that were practicing the particular religion. And my father was a Russian Orthodox priest. And those were some big shoes to um, slip into if I were, he, his presence in the community is still talked about today. And for him, he realized that that was the place he needed to go in order to help his people, our people, that that was the tool that was avail available to him at the time to become a priest and to lead people in prayer and to um, be comforting to them, to live with them and to develop a place where people could express who they are. Um, and he was very good at it. And I think it was his mission and his calling 
and he 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 made this wonderful uh, incubator for us to um, to be healthy and go forward in. But I also remember him saying, I remember he, he I remember him saying, um, sometimes I long for the days when we just respected the earth, the sea, and the sky. And when he said that, I was 25. At that point, it was a turning point for me. It, he basically was giving me permission to to delve into those arenas that um, the church might have tried to stop, try to keep from happening, things that might have been considered pagan uh, when they really weren't. One of the things is tattooing. When I became heart-to-heart connected to the Unangah culture in a removed fashion, because again, it had been asleep for a couple hundred years, um, when my father handed me these books and he was interacting with me about Unangah culture, um, it, I, I remember that uh, there would be, there was this one little boy that said, um, what did the Unangin, what did the Unangin do about yada yada yada? And I said, you mean us? And he goes, no, the real ones. And it, that was in the 90s, and that made me realize that we were so disconnected from our culture, we thought of it as in the past, and we didn't even realize we are a part of it. And at that point, I took it to heart um, to be a part of bringing back the song and dance at the time. When we did dances, we uh, used um, eyebrow pencils and drew tattoos on our faces. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this is so, you have to draw them on again. And I'm like, I started to think I need to just have a tattoo. And I like figured, well, I just can't just have a tattoo. I have to figure out why they happened. And so I researched um, I didn't find anything connected to the Pribilof Islands because by the time we were brought here as part of that labor force in the uh, the fur rush days, um, we were Christianized and there wasn't a particular tattoo design that was connected to the Pribilof Islands. So I felt like I had some freedom to to come up with a design. So I did. I, I, I would uh, draw, have a sketchbook, have different uh, ideas. I looked at my own personal story, and um, my father passed in July 2003, and in February 2004, I went in to be tattooed. Whatever I'm doing right now were the tools that he gave to me and expressed to me in his um, interactions with me. I'm very fortunate and blessed to have been given a purpose and sometimes I want to just go to like maybe Hawaii and lay on the beach and have no cares in the world but I realize I have I have a, a role to fill but the young ladies I work with now I feel like we're like part of this core team that will I have more young ladies kindling that fire with me and I don't know if it's at some point in my life I realized I needed to do that. I was feeling very alone in my efforts uh, with language revitalization in my community. 
it's not that people didn't think it was important. It's they had lives, and, and I realized, you know, I can't uh, revive. I can't build my uh, knowledge of the language and use it if I have no one to talk to. I have to have. It has to be team effort. And these young ladies, it was divine design. It happened at the right time. And uh, I'm very fortunate to be a part of that and to influence that. And also, I want to be like my dad in that he knew how to gracefully step aside. When he retired as a Russian Orthodox priest, he realized people had this love for him that was wonderful and deep, but that if he stayed in the community and their next spiritual leader that came in uh, would be coming in in his shadow, that it might mess with that particular person's ability to step into the role of a spiritual leader. He left. Again, he set that example as like, how do I gracefully step aside and um, let these young ladies step into the roles that that they need to to step into and be available to them. How do I do that? And I'm figuring that out right now. It is uh, another challenge that I accept. And ask me 10 years from now what it looks like and to be continued. <laughs> what, um, what, scares you the most about your your role in your community and you said that you felt like if you weren't carrying that fire you didn't know if others would but it sounds like you, you know there's definitely a generation of a younger generation of women that are going to be able to do that in the future of your community I do, I, some of my fears are more grounded in my physical well-being. Uh, last year, I did sort of look death in the face with um, an appendix that went um, went wrong. And I had to be medevaced and I spent time in the hospital. And yes, one of my thoughts was like, oh my gosh, I'm not done with my work. I have more things to do. So my immediate um, existence, uh, in a sense, was I'm trying to pay attention to that a little more than I have in the past. Oh, I heard one of the young ladies that I work with, she was asked by another person, she was interviewed about a month ago, and she was asked, so if Aqualina um, were not here, do you think you could continue this work? And she thought about it and thought about it. And she goes, yeah, I think I could. And I felt really good. And then she said, except for the writing grants. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I better focus on that now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, one of, I guess if I had to fear something about our language right now, and we are aware of it, we're talking about it, I'm talking about it with my colleagues, <clears throat> is that... Um, the way that we are keeping our language alive is not necessarily organic because we're we're 
we're making these lessons for folks to use in order to uh, speak the language and to hear how they're speaking the language, to hear others speak the language, because there are so few folks that can hear speak it right now. Sometimes, because right now you say you're Alaskan, you say you're American, those are, those are ways people know you, okay, right now. A long, long time ago and not so very far away, we were, uh, it was a little bit different. We were like, we were Russian. What? We were. What? Where? What's your last name? Kozlova. Dementiev. Melvidov. But your dad's last name. Oh, even that, Melvidov is, yes. Well, those are wrong. It's the Kodiak is way over here. Not the way it was when I was younger, where it was every day. I went home and my parents spoke it. Um, I guess my fear is that it would be institutionalized, that folks just depend on the a school to do it, and we are working with our one local school to revitalize the language, but we have to be mindful of that the community realizes it, it can't just stay there, which I think has happened for so many, for so many parts of not only our culture, but other cultures too. When the children go to school and they're, they're learning the dance or the culture, and they graduate, they sort of leave it behind. And how do we become better at them taking it with them when they go? And at the same time, how do we find little uh, incubators in the community that are already existing for us to go and bring the language into those realms and that they're just not in the school from 3 o'clock to 3.30? Uh, I think we have to be mindful of that. Um, but you sound hopeful. Yeah. I, I am hopeful. Yeah, um, when I, you don't think about it, when you're in the trenches and you're doing the work, you don't always um, step out of it and pay attention to it. And usually it takes someone coming in and seeing it happening and then they say something and you go, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. I didn't think about that. And one of them is that the children greeting the elders in the grocery store, on the streets, in the post office, and these place, these other places outside of the school, it's happening. And the elders love that that's happening. And people that come to visit from other communities notice it. And they go, well, this is pretty cool. You know, it's not just happening in the classroom. It's not just happening in within walls. It's happening outside on the streets, and that's cool. Okay, now start talking. Can you show me, Isak, the sign for Angalian? You know, you talked about three years ago, you felt like you were basically giving CPR to your community and you couldn't leave for fear of, you know, the language and the 
everything that makes up the Unangan culture might fall apart. Um, and now you talk about, you know, feeling, feeling pretty okay with it. You know, you see this new generation of women coming in to, to take on that role. I mean, what are your visions and hopes for, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What, what do you think it'll look like then? I'm hoping that uh, my grandchildren are telling stories in the language. Um, I'm hoping I can, like, be a good kuka, which is the word for grandmother in our language. Ten years from now, I'm hoping, and I know that the young ladies that I work with are also hoping that we're not just teaching the children to speak the language, that we are teaching them to be unangah in the language, that we are the subsistence gathering communication, the basket weaving and the uh, sewing of the the gut and um, the building of the ikiach, that they're all happening in the language. Those are things that we see as very possible at this point in time. We're on our way into our community uh, to venture into gathering fish, gathering the seal, gathering the plants. And um, But yeah, we had to start somewhere <laughs> and started in this room that I'm in right now, but we'll get there. Tuck in a la Cancun. Ila la coming on the league and Uguta. Ila la coming on the league and Uguta. Ila la coming on the league and Uguta. Sumang Nagogi. Sumang Nagogi. Sumang Nagogi. Ila la coming on the league and Uguta. I think um, I am very fortunate to have been given the leeway that I've been given to do the work that I'm doing. Um, And I am even more fortunate to be in the community of people that I'm in right now because they've provided that leeway. They haven't, uh, they've been very supportive. The fact that over many decades, okay, just a few, (laughs) um, three decades maybe, people trusting me with their children is very important. And I feel very honored um, that parents have not uh, stopped their, their daughter's to come and work with me and to spend time with me. I'm very fortunate that that's happening. And mothers who support their daughters in this effort are are quite, yeah, I love them. Some of the young folks that I work with, I've worked with their mothers uh, when they were teenagers. So that's the, I appreciate that everyone that I live with in the community has some role and that uh, we have this wonderful generational existence that I've been able to not just witness, but 
have a role in ensuring that it continues. What do you love most about being Unangan? Interestingly, again, I'm going to say it's a place thing. If I were Unangan in uh, the metropolis or in the rest of the world, it would definitely be um, very different. Only because the fact that I'm Unangan here and where I'm at, I don't have to prove it. I don't have to... I don't have to show anybody here that I'm rubbing shoulders with that I'm unangach. Um, I've just been able just to be a human being in my community. And I don't always have to say I am unangach. And because the folks that I live with, they know it because that's what they are too. However, in part of our language learning, we realized we're not really good at introducing ourselves. And we had to really learn how to do that just because we never really had to. It's like you people have known, you've known, I've known these young ladies that I work with now since they were in diapers and uh, seen them in the grocery store when their parents are pushing them in the carts. And I guess what I appreciate most about being unangach is that it is um, an island culture, that it does, its ingredient is the sea and everything in it. And the language definitely developed by the sea and uh, the island ecology has um, so much to offer to the rest of the world. It may not be offering it right now, but as we keep it going through time, and hopefully for that next generation, uh, I'm sure that um, they will be able to define unangach in a, a healthier world. And I'm hopeful for that. Well, thank you so much um, for speaking with me today. I think you're amazing and um it was so nice talking to you thank you aquilina there is so much more to aquilina's story and her efforts to continue her language revitalization program on the island if you'd like to hear more let us know we love hearing from you And while you're at it, leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast so that we can continue to share these stories with the rest of the world. This episode was produced and edited by me, Serena Simons, and a special thanks to Sean Bogle for additional audio. If you'd like to learn more about the history of the Inangan people and their place on the Pribilof Islands, there's a great documentary out called People of the Seal that you can go watch right now. You can view the show notes page for this episode by visiting wildlandsinc.org slash eoc165.